Good morning, my majestic friends. Uh, today, I decided I'm going to do, I guess we'll call it a scary pause because it's Halloween this weekend and I really wanted to read to you a classic by Washington Irving. Can you guess it? I'm sure you can. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving, who lived in Tarrytown here in the Valley. And uh, his beautiful um, home, Lindhurst, is just a pleasure and delight to visit. You should definitely check that out. I am reading from my printed copy of the sketchbook, which was published first printing in 1961. I, that's 60 years ago, people. This book was printed before I was born. So I really hope you enjoy this. Yeah. Please remember to subscribe and uh, enjoy, enjoy. Here we go. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving, found among the papers of the late Deirdrick Knickerbocker. A pleasing land of drowsy head it was, of dreams that wave before the half-shut eye, and of gay castles in the clouds that pass, forever flushing round a summer sky from the castle of indolence. In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson, at the broad expansion of the river denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators the Tappan Zee, and where they always prudently shortened sail and implored the protection of St. Nicholas when they crossed, there lies a small market town or rural port, which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Tarry Town. This name was given, we are told, in former days by the good housewives of the adjacent country from the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the village tavern on market days. Be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact, but merely advert to it for the sake of being precise and authentic. Not far from this village, perhaps about two miles, there is a little valley, or rather lap of land among the high hills, which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. A small brook glides through it, and just murmur enough to lull one to repose, and the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquility. I recollect that when a stripling, my first exploit in squirrel shooting, was in a grove of tall walnut trees that shades one side of the valley. I had wandered into it at noontime, when all nature is peculiarly quiet 
and was startled by the roar of my own gun as it broke the Sabbath stillness around and was prolonged and reverberated by the angry echoes. If I ever should wish for a retreat, whither I might steal from the world and its distractions and dream quietly away the remnant of a troubled life, I know of none more promising than this little valley. From the listless repose of the place and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who are descendants from original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow. And its rustic lads are called the Sleepy Hollow Boys throughout all neighboring country. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land and to pervade the very atmosphere. Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement. Others, that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrik Hudson. Certain it is, the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs and are subject to trances and visions and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley than in any other part of the country, and the nightmare, with her whole ninefold, seems to make it the favorite scene of her gambles. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts the enchanted region and seems to be the commander-in-chief of all the powers of air is an apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It is said to some to be the ghost of the Hessian trooper whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War and who was ever and anon seen by the country folk hurrying along in the gloom of the night as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley, but extend at time to the adjacent roads and especially to the vicinity of a church, no great distance indeed, certain to the most authentic historians of those parts who have been careful in collecting and collating the floating facts concerning this specter. Allege that the body of the trooper having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides forth to be buried in battle in nightly quest of his head, and that his rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow like a midnight blast is owning to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. Such is the general purport of this legendary superstition, which has furnished materials for many a wild story in the region of shadows. And the specter is known at all country firesides by the name of the headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow. It is remarkable 
that the visionary propensity I have mentioned is not confined to the native inhabitants of the valley, but is unconsciously imbibed by everyone who resides there for a time. However wide awake they may have been before they entered the sleepy region, they are sure in a little time to inhale the witching influence of the air and begin to grow imaginative, to dream dreams and see apparitions. I mention this peaceful spot with all possible load, for it is in such a retired little Dutch valleys found here, there embosomed in the great state of New York, that population, manners, and customs remains fixed, while a great torrent of migration and improvement, which is making such incessant changes in other parts of this restless country, sweeps by them unobserved. There are like those little nooks of still water which border a rapid stream, where we may see the straw and bubble riddling quietly at anchor or slowly revolving in their mimic harbor, undisturbed by the rush of a passing current. Though many years have elapsed since I trod the drowsy shades of Sleepy Hollow, yet I question whether I should not still find the same trees and the same families vegetating in its sheltered bosom. In this by-place of nature, there abode, in some remote period of American history, that is to say, some 30 years since, a worthy white of the name of Ichabod Crane, who sojourned, as he expressed it, tarried in Sleepy Hollow for the purpose of instructing children of the vicinity. He was a native of Connecticut, a state which supplies the union with pioneers for the mind as well as for the forest and sends forth yearly its legions of frontier woodsmen and country schoolmasters. The Kongman of the Crane was not an inapplicable was not inapplicable to this person. He was tall but exceedingly lank with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, feet that might have been served for shovels, and his whole frame might loosely hung together. His head was small and flat at top, with huge ears, large glassy eyes, and a nose, long snipe nose, so that it looked like a weathercock perched upon his spindle neck to tell which way the wind blew. To see him striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day, with his clothes banging and fluttering about him, one might have mistaken him for the genius of a famine descending upon the earth, or some scarecrow eloped from a cornfield. His schoolhouse was a low building of one large room, rudely constructed of logs, the windows partly glazed and partly patched with leaves of old copy books. It was most ingeniously secured at vacant hours by the wythe twisted in the handle of a door and stakes set against the window shutters. So that though a thief might get in with perfect ease, he would find some embarrassment in getting out. An idea most probably borrowed by the architect Joost van Houten from the mystery of an eel pot. 
The schoolhouse stood in a rather lonely but pleasant situation, just at the foot of a woody hill with a brook running close by and a formidable birch tree growing at one end of it. From hence, the low murmur of his pupils' voices, coning over in their lessons, might be heard in a drowsy summer's day, like the hum of a beehive, interrupted now and then by the authoritative voice of the master in the tone of menace or command or peraventure preaventure by the appalling sound of the birch as he urged some tardy loiterer along the flowery path of knowledge truth to say he was a conscientious, conscientious man and ever bore in mind the golden maxim Spare the rod and spoil the child. Ichabod Crane's scholars certainly were not spoiled. I would not have imagined it, however, that he was one of those cruel potentates of the school who joy in the smart of their subjects. On the contrary, he administered justice with discrimination rather than severity, taking the burthen off the backs of the weak and laying it on those of the strong. Your mere puny stripling that winced at the least flourish of the rod was passed by with indulgence. But the claims of justice were satisfied by the inflicting of a double portion on some little tough, wrong-headed, broad-skirted Dutch urchin who sulked and swelled and grew dogged and sullen beneath the birch. All this he called doing his duty by their parents, and he never inflicted a chastisement without following it by the assurance so consolatory to the smarting urchin that he would remember it and thank him for it the longest day he had to live. When the school hours were over, he was even the companion and playmate of the larger boys, and on holiday afternoons would convoy some of the smaller ones home who happened to have pretty sisters or good housewives from mothers noted for the comforts of the cupboard. Indeed, it behooved him to keep good on the terms with his pupils. The revenue arising from his school was small, and would have been scarcely sufficient to furnish him with daily bread. For he was a huge feeder, and though lank, had the dilatating powers of the anaconda. But to help out his maintenance, he was, according to country custom in those parts, boarded and lodged at the houses of the farmers whose children he instructed. With these he lived successively <laughs> a week at a time thus going the rounds of the neighborhood with all his worldly effects tied up in a cotton handkerchief. That all his might not be too onerous on the purses of his rustic patients who, patrons who were apt to consider the costs of the schooling a grievous burden and schoolmasters as mere drones, he had various ways of rendering himself both useful and agreeable. He assisted the farmers occasionally in the lighter labors of their farms, helped to make hay, mended the fences, took the horses to water, drove the cows from pasture, and cut wood for the winter fire. He laid aside, too, 
all the dominant dignity and absolute sway with which he lorded in, in his little empire, the school, and became wonderfully gentle and ingratiating. He found favor in the eyes of the mothers by petting the children, particularly the youngest, and like the lion bold, which Willem so magnanimously the lamb did hold, he would sit with the child on one knee and rock a cradle with his foot for whole hours together. In addition to his other vocations, he was the singing master of the neighborhood and picked up many bright shillings by instructing the young folks in psalmody. <laughs> it was a matter of no little vanity to him. On Sundays, to take his station in front of the church gallery with a band of chosen singers, where in his own mind, he completely carried away the palm from the parson. Certain it is, his voice resounded far above all the rest of the congregation, and there are peculiar quavers still to be heard in that church, and which may even be heard half a mile off, quite to the opposite side of the mill pond on a still Sunday morning, which are said to be legitimately descended from the nose of Ichabod Crane. Thus, by diverse little makeshifts in that ingenious way which is commonly denominated by hook or by crook, the worthy pedagogue got on tolerably enough and was thought by all who understood nothing for the labor of headwork to have a wonderfully easy life of it. The schoolmaster is generally a man of some importance in the female circle of a rural neighborhood. Being considered a kind of idle, gentleman-like personage of vastly superior taste and accomplishments to the tough country swains, and indeed inferior in learning only to the parson. His appearance, therefore, is apt to occasion some little stir at the tea table of a farmhouse, and in addition of a supernumerary dish of cakes or sweetmeats or peradventure, the parade of a silver teapot. Our man of letters, therefore, was peculiarly happy in the smiles of all the country damsels. How he would figure among them in the churchyard, between services on Sundays, gathering grapes for them from the wild vines that overrun the surrounding trees, reciting for their amusement all the epitaphs on the tombstones, or sauntering with a whole bevy of them along the banks of the adjacent mill pond, while the more bashful country bumpkins hung sheepishly back, envying his superior elegance and address. From his half turret life, also, he was kind of traveling, a traveling gazette, carrying the whole budget of local gossip from house to house, so that his appearance was always greeted with satisfaction. He was, moreover, esteemed by the women as a man of great erudition, for he had read several books quite through and was a perfect master of Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft in which, by the way, he most firmly and potently believed. He was, in fact, an odd mixture of a small shrewdness and simple credulity. 
His appetite for the marvelous and his powers of digesting it were equally extraordinary, and both had been increased by his residence in his spellbound region. No tale was too gross or monstrous for his capacious swallow. It was often his delight, after his school was dismissed in the afternoon, to stretch himself on the rich bed of clover, bordering the little brook that whimpered by the schoolhouse, and there con over old Mather's direful tales until the gathering dusk of the evening made the printed page a mere mist before his eyes. Then, as he wended his way by swamp and stream and awful woodland to the farmhouse where he happened to be quartered, every south of nature at that witching outer fluttered his excited imagination. The moan of the whippoorwill from the hillside, the boding cry of the tree toad, the har harbor harbinger of the storm, the dreary hooting of the screech owl, or the sudden rustling in the thickened of birds frightened from their roost. The fireflies, too, which sparkled most vividly in the darkest places, now and then startled him, as one of the uncommon brightness would stream across his path, and if, if by chance a huge blockhead of a beetle came winging his blundering flight against him, the poor varlet was ready to give up the ghost, and the idea that he was struck with the witch's token, his only resource on such occasions, either to drown thought or to drive away evil spirits, was to sing psalm tunes. And the good people of Sleepy Hollow, as they sat by their doors of an evening, were often filled with awe at hearing his nasal melody, in linked, sweetness long drawn out, floating from the distant hill or along the dusty, dusky road. Another of his sources of fearful pleasure was to pass long winter evenings with the old Dutch wives as they sat spinning by the fire with a row of apples roasting and the spluttering along the hearth and listened to their marvelous tales of ghosts and goblins and haunted fields and haunted brooks and haunted bridges and haunted houses and particularly of the headless horseman or the galloping Hassan of the hollow as they sometimes called him. He would delight them equally at his anecdotes of witchcraft and of the direful omens and protonous sights and the sounds in the air which prevailed in the earlier times of Connecticut and would frighten them woefully with speculations upon the comets and shooting stars and with the alarming fact that the world did absolutely turn around and that they were half the time topsy-turvy. But if there was pleasure in all of this, while snuggling, cuddling in the chimney corner of a chamber that was all ruddy glow from the crackling wood fire, and where, of course, no specter dared to show his face, it was dearly purchased by the terrors of his subsequent walk homewards. What fearful shapes and shadows beset his path amidst the dim and ghastly glare of a snowy night? With what wistful look did he I, every trembling ray of light streaming across the waste fields from some distant window. How often he was appalled by some shrub covered with snow, which like a sheeted specter beset the very path. How often did he shrink, did he shrink with the curdling awe at the sound of his own steps at the frosty crust beneath his feet. And 
the dread to look over his shoulder, lest he should behold some uncouth being trampling close behind him. And how often as he was thrown into complete dismay by some rushing blast, howling among the trees, in the idea that it was galloping Hessian on one of his nightly scourings. All these, however, were mere terrors of the night, phantoms of the mind that walk in the darkness. And though he had seen many specters in his time and been more than once beset by Satan in diverse shapes in his lonely perambulations, yet daylight put an end to all these evils. And he would have passed a pleasant life in it, in despite of the devil and all his works, if his path had not been crossed by being that by a being that causes more perplexity to a mortal man than ghosts, goblins, and the whole race of witches put together. And that was a woman. Among the musical disciples who assembled one evening in each week to receive his instructions in psalmody was Katrina Van Tassel, the daughter and only child of, his, of a substantial Dutch farmer. She was a blooming lass of fresh 18, plump as a partridge, ripe and melting and rosy-cheeked as one of her father's peaches, and universally famed, not merely for her beauty, but for her vast expectations. She was a withal a little of a coquette, as might be perceived even in her dress, which was a mixture of ancient and modern fashions, as most suited to set off her charms. She wore the ornaments of pure yellow gold, which her great-great-grandmother had brought over from Sardam, the tempting stomacher of an olden time, and withal of a provokingly short petticoat to display the prettiest foot and ankle in the country around. Ichabod Crane had a soft and foolish heart towards the sex, and it is not to be wondered at that so tempting a morsel soon found favor in his eyes more especially after he had visited her in her paternal mansion. Old Baltus Van Tessel was a perfect picture of a thriving, contented, liberal-hearted farmer. He seldom, it is true, sent either his eyes or his thoughts beyond the boundaries of his own farm, but within those everything was snug, happy, and well-conditioned. He was satisfied with his wealth, but not proud of it, and piqued himself upon the hearty abundance rather than the style in which he lived. His stronghold was situated on the banks of the Hudson, in one of those green, gentle, sheltered, fertile nooks in which the Dutch farmers are so fond of nestling. A great elm tree spread its broad branches over it, at the foot of which bubbled up a spring of the softest and sweetest water, in a little well formed of a barrel and then stole sparkling away through the grass to a neighboring brook that bubbled along among alders and dwarf willows. Hard by the farmhouse was a vast barn that might have served for a church, every window and crevice of which seemed bursting forth with the treasures of the farm. The flail was but busily resounding within it from morning to night. Swallows and martins skimmed twittering about the eaves and rows of pigeons, some with one eye turned up as if the watching the weather, some with their heads under their wings or buried in their bosoms and others swelling and cooing 
and bowing about their dames, were enjoying the sunshine on the roof. Sleek, unwielding porkers were grunting in the repose and abundance of their pens, whence sailed forth now and then troops of sucking pigs as if to snuff the air. A stately squadron of snowy geese were riding in an adjoining pond, convoying whole fleets of ducks, Regiments of turkeys were gobbling through the farmyard and guinea fowls fretting about it like ill-tempered housewives with their peevish, discontented cry. Before the barn door strutted a gallant cock, the pattern of a husband, a warrior, and a fine gentleman, clapping his varnished wings and crowing in the pride and gladness of his heart, sometimes tearing up the earth with his feet and then generously calling his ever-hungry family of wives and children to enjoy the rich morsel which he had discovered. The pedagogue's mouth watered as he looked upon his sumptuous promise of luxurious winter fare. In his devouring mind's eye, he pictured himself every roasting pig running about with a pudding in his belly and an apple in his mouth. The pigeons were snugly put to bed in a comfortable pie and tucked in with a coverlet of crust. The geese were swimming in their own gravy, the ducks pairing cozily in dishes like snug married couples with a decent competency of onion sauce. In the porkers, he saw carved out the future sleek side of bacon and a juicy relishing ham. Not a turkey, but he beheld daintily trussed up with its gizzard under its wing and parading venture a necklace of savory sausages and even bright chanticleer himself lay sprawling on his back in a side dish with uplifted claws as if craving that quarter which his civil chivalrous spirit disdained to ask while living as the enraptured echabod fancied all this and as he rolled his great green eyes over the fat meadow lands, the rich fields of wheat, of rye, of buckwheat, and of Indian corn, and the orchards burthened with ruddy fruit which surrounded the warm tenement of Van Tassel, his heart yearned after the damsel who was to inherit these domains. And his imagination expanded with the idea of how they might be readily turned into cash and the money invested in immense tracts of wild land and shingle palaces in the wilderness. Nay, his busy fancy already realized his hopes and presented to him the blooming Katrina with a whole family of children mounted on top of a wagon loaded with household trumpery with pots and kettles dangling beneath and he beheld himself bestriding a pacing mare with a colt at her heels, setting out for Kentucky, Tennessee, or Lord knows where. When he entered the house, the conquest of his heart was complete. It was one of those spacious farmhouses with high ridge but lowly slooping roofs, built in the style handed down from the first Dutch settlers, the low projecting eaves forming a piazza along the front, capable of being closed up in bad weather. Under this were hung flails, harness, various utensils of husbandry, and nets for fishing in the neighboring river. Benches were built along the sides for summer use, and a great spinning wheel at one end, and a churn at the other, 
showed the various uses to which this important porch might be devoted. From this piazza, the wandering Ichabod encountered the hall, which formed the center of a mansion and the place of usual residence. Here rows of resplendent pewter ranged on a long dresser dazzled his eyes. In one corner stood a huge bag of wool ready to be spun, and another a quantity of linsey woolsey just from the loom. Ears from Indian corn and string of dried apples and peaches hung in gay festoons along the walls, mingled with the god of red peppers, and a door left ajar gave him a peep into the best parlor, where the claw-footed chairs and dark mahogany tables shone like mirrors, and irons with their accompanying shovel and tongues glistened from their covert and asparagus tops, mock oranges and conch shells decorated the mantelpiece. Strings of various colored birds' eggs were suspended above it. A great ostrich egg was hung from the center of the room, and a corner cupboard, knowingly left open, displayed the immense treasures of old silver and well-mended china. From the moment Ichabod laid his eyes upon these regions of delight, the peace of his mind was at an end and his only study was how to gain the affections of the peerless daughter of Van Tessel. In this enterprise, however, he had more real difficulties than generally fell at the lot of a knight-errant of yore, who seldom had anything but giants, enchanters, fiery dragons, and such like easily conjured adversaries to contend with, and had to make his way merely through the gates of iron and brass and walls of adamant to the castle keep where the lady of his heart was confined, all which he achieved as easily as a man would carve his way to the center of a Christmas pie. And then the lady gave him her hand as a matter of course. Ichabod, on the contrary, had to win his way to his heart as if uh, um, the way to the heart of a country coquette beset with a labyrinth of whims and caprices, which were forever presenting new difficulties and impediments. And he had to encounter a host of fearful adversaries of real flesh and blood, the numerous rustic admirers who beset every portal to her heart, keeping a watchful and angry eye upon each other, but ready to fly out in the common cause against any new competitor. Among these, the most formidable was a burly, roaring, rostering blade of the name of Abraham, or, according to the Dutch abbreviation, Broom Van Brunt, the hero of the country round, which rang with his feats of strength and hardihood. He was broad shoulders and double-jointed with short curly black hair and a bluff but not unpleasant countenance having a mingled air of fun and arrogance. From his Herculean frame and the great powers of limb, he had received the nickname of Brahm Bones, by which he was universally known. He was famed for great knowledge and skill in horsemanship, being as dexterous on horseback as a tartar. He was foremost at all races and cockfights, and with an ascendancy which bodily strength acquires in rustic life, was an umpire in all disputes, setting his hat on one side and giving his decisions with an air and tone admittedly of no gainsay or appeal.
He was always ready for either a fight or a frolic, but had more mischiefs mischief than ill will in his composition. And with all his overbearing roughness, there was a strong dash of waggish good homer at the bottom. He had three or four boon companions who regarded him as their model and at the head of whom he scoured the country, attending every scene of feud or merriment for miles around. In cold weather, he was distinguished by a fur cap surmounted with a flux, uh, flaunting fox's tail. And then when the folks at a country gathering described this well-known crest at the distance, whisking about among a squad of hard riders, they always stood by for a squall. Sometimes his crew would be heard dashing along past farmhouses at midnight with whoop and halloo, like a troop of Don Cossacks. And the old dames, startled out of their sleep, would listen for a moment at the moment till the hurry scurry had clattered by and then exclaimed, Ah, there goes Brom Bones with his gang. The neighbors looked upon him with a mixture of awe, admiration, and goodwill. And when any madcap prank or rustic brawl occurred in the vicinity, always shook their heads and warranted Brom Bones was at the bottom of it. This rentable hero had for some time singled out the blooming Katrina for the object of his uncouth gallantries. And though his amorous toyings were something like the gentle caresses and endearments of a bear, yet it was whispered that she did not altogether discourage his hopes. Certain it is his advances were signals for rival candidates to retire, who felt no inclination to cross a lion in his amours. Insomuch, and when his horse was seen tied to Van Tassel's pawling on a Sunday night, a sure sign that his master was courting, or, as it is termed, sparking, within all his suitors passed by in despair and carried the war into other quarters. Such was the formidable rival with whom Ichabod Crane had to contend. And considering all things, a stouter man than would have shrunk from his competition, and a wiser man would have despaired. Had He had, however, a happy mixture of pliability and perseverance in his nature. He was in form and spirit like a supple jack. Yielding but tough, though he bent, he never broke. And though he bowed beneath the slightest pressure, yet the moment it was away, jerk. He was erect and carried his head as high as ever. To have taken the field openly against his rival would have been madness. For he was not a man to be thwarted in his amours any more than the stormy lover Achilles. Ichabod, therefore, made his advances in a quiet and gently insinuating manner. Under cover of his character of singing master, he made frequent visits to the farmhouse. Not that he had anything to apprehend from the meddlesome interference of parents, which is so often a stumbling block in the path of lovers. Balt von Tassel was an easy, indulgent soul. He loved his daughter better even than his pipe, 
And like a reasonable man and an excellent father, let her have her way in everything. His notable little wife, too, had enough to do to attend to her housekeeping and manage her poultry, for as she sagely observed, ducks and geese are foolish things and must be looked after, but girls can take care of themselves. Thus, while the busy dame bustled about the house or plied her spinning wheel at one end of the piazza, Honest Balt would sit smoking his evening pipe at the other, watching the achievements of a little wooden warrior who, armed with a sword in each hand, was most valiantly fighting the wind on the pinnacle of the barn. In the meantime, Ichabod would carry in his suit with the daughter by his side of the spring under the great elm or sauntering along, along in the twilight, that hour so favorable to the lover's eloquence. I profess not to know how women's hearts are wooed and won. To me, they have always been matters of riddle and admiration. Some seem to have but one vulnerable point or door of access, while others have a thousand avenues and may be captured in a thousand different ways. It is a great triumph of skill to gain the former, but a still greater proof of generalship to maintain possession of the latter. For the man must battle for his fortress at every door and window. He who wins a thousand common hearts is therefore entitled to some renown, but he who keeps undisputed, undisputed sway over the heart of a coquette is indeed a hero. Certain it is, this was not the case with the redoubtable brown bones. And from the moment Ichabod Crane made his advances, the interests of the former evidently declined. His horse was no longer seed tied at the pawlings on Sunday nights, and a deadly feud gradually arose between him and the preceptor of Sleepy Hollow. Brahm, who had a degree of rough chivalry in his nature, would fain have carried matters to open warfare and have settled their pretensions to the lady according to the mode of those most concise and simple reasoners. The knight errant of yore, by single combat. But Ichabod was too conscious of the superior might of his adversary to enter the lists against him. He had overheard a boast of bones, that he would double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse, and he was too worried to give him an opportunity. There was something extremely provoking in this obstinately pacific system. It left Brahm no alternative but to draw upon the funds of rustic wagery in his disposition and to play off boorish practical jokes upon his rival. Ichabod became the object of whimsical persecution to Bones and his gang of rough riders. They harried his hitherto peaceful domains, smoked out his singing school by stopping up the chimney, broke into the schoolhouse at night in spite of its formidable fastenings of wythe and window stakes, and turned everything topsy-turvy 
so that the poor schoolmaster began to think all the witches in the country held their meetings there. But what was still annoying, Brahm took all opportunities of turning him into ridicule in presence of his mistress and had a scoundrel dog whom he had taught to whine in the most ludicrous manner and introduced as a rival of Ichabod's to instruct her in Samaldi. In this way, matters went on for some time without producing any material effect on the relative situation of contending powers. On a fine autumnal afternoon, Ichabod, in pensive mood, sat enthroned on the lofty stool whence he usually watched all the concerns of his little literary realm. In his hand, he swayed a furl and a scepter of despotic power. The birch of justice reposed on three nails behind a throne, a constant terror to evildoers, while on the desk before him might be seen sundry contraband articles and prohibited weapons detected upon the persons of idle urchins, such as half-munched apples, pop guns, whirly gigs, fly cages, and whole legions of rampant little paper gamecocks. Apparently, there had been some appalling act of justice recently inflicted, for his scholars were all busy busily intent upon their books or slyly whispering behind them with one eye kept upon the master and a kind of buzzing stillness reigned throughout the schoolroom. It was suddenly interrupted by the appearance, the appearance of a Negro in a towel cloth jacket and trousers, a round craned fragment of a hat like a cap of mercury and mounted on the back of a ragged, wild, broken, half broken cult, which he managed with a rope by a way of a halter. He came clattering up the school door with an invitation to act Ichabod to attend a merry-making or quilting frolic to be held that evening at Mayenheer Van Tassel's. And having delivered his message with that air of importance and an effort of fine language is apt to display on petty embassies of the kind, he dashed over the brook and was seen scampering away up the hollow full of the importance and hurry of his mission. All was now bustle and hubbub in the late schoolroom. The scholars were hurried through their lessons without stopping at trifles. Those who were nimble skipped over half with impunity, and those who were tardy had a smart application now, and then in the rear to quicken their speed aside, uh, help them with ever over a tall word. Books were flung aside without being put away on the shelves, inkstands were overturned, benches thrown down, and the whole school was turned loose an hour before the usual time. Bustling forth like a legion of young imps, yelping and racketing about the green in joy at their early emancipation. The gallant Ichabod now spent at least an extra half an hour at his toilet, brushing and furbishing up his best and indeed only suit of rusty black and arranging his looks by a bit of broken looking glass that hung up in the schoolhouse. That he might make his appearance before his mistress in the true style of a cavalier, he borrowed a horse from a farmer with whom he was uh, domiciled, uh, domicile, a choleric old Dutchman by the name of Hans Van Ripper, 
and thus gallantly mounted, issued forth like a knight errant in quest of adventures. But it is meet I should, in the true spirit of romantic story, give some account of the looks and equipments of my hero and his steed. The animal he bestrode was a broken-down plow horse that had outlived almost everything in but his viciousness. He was gaunt and shagged, with a ew neck and a head like a hammer. His rusty mane and tail were tangled and knotted with burrs. One eye had lost its pupil and was glaring and spectral, but the other had the gleam of a genuine devil in it. Still, he must have had the fire and metal in his day, if we may judge from the name he bore of gunpowder. He had, in fact, been a favorite steed of his master's, the choleric Van Ripper, who was a furious rider and had infused, very probably, some of his own spirit into the animal. For an old and broken down as he looked, there was more of the lurking devil in him than in the young filly in the country. Ichabod was a suitable figure for such a steed. He rode with short stirrups, which brought his knees nearly up to the pummel of the saddle. His sharp elbows stuck out like grasshoppers. He carried his whip perpendicularly in his hand like a scepter. And as his horse jogged on, the moment of his arms was not unlike the flapping of a pair of wings. A smart wool hat rested on the top of his nose. For so his scanty strip of forehead might be called, and the skirts of his black coat flooded out almost to the horse's tail. Such was the appearance of Ichabod and his steed. As they shambled out of the gate of Hans Van Ripper, and it was altogether such an apparition as is seldom to be met with in broad daylight. It was, as I have said, a fine autumnal day. The sky was clear and serene, and nature wore that rich and golden livery which we always associate with the idea of abundance. The forests had put their sober brown and yellow, while some trees of the tender kind had been nipped by the frost into brilliant dyes of orange, purple, and scarlet. Streaming flies of wild ducks began to make their appearance high in the air. The bark of the squirrel might be heard from the groves of a beech and hickory nuts, and the pensive whistle of the quail at intervals from the neighboring stubble field. The small birds were taking their farewell banquets. In the fullness of their revelry, they fluttered, chirping and frolicking from bush to bush and tree to tree, capricious from the very profusion and variety around There was the honest cock-robin, the favorite game of stripling sportsmen, with its loud, querulous note and the twittering blackbirds flying in the sable clouds, and the golden-winged woodpecker with his crimson crest, his broad black gorget and splendid plumage, and the cedar bird with, the, with its red-tipped wings and yellow-tipped tail and its little Montario cap of feathers and the blue jay, that noisy coxcomb, in his gray light blue coat and white underclothes, screaming and chattering, nodding and bobbing and bowing, and pretending to be on good terms with every songster of the grove. 
As Ichabod jogged slowly on his way, his eye ever open and every symptom of culinary abundance rang with delight over the treasures of jolly autumn. All On all sides he beheld vast store of apples, some hanging in oppressive opulence on the trees, some gathered into baskets and barrels for the market, others heaped up in rich piles for the cider press. Further on, he beheld the great fields of Indian corn with its golden ears peeping from their leafy coverts and holding out the promise of cakes and hasty pudding. And the yellow pumpkins lying beneath them, turning up their fair round bellies to the sun and giving ample prospects of the most luxurious of pies. And anon he passed the fragrant buckwheat fields, breathing the odor of the beehive. And as he beheld them, soft, ugh, soft anticipation <laughs> stole over his mind of dainty slapjacks, well buttered and garnished with honey or treacle, and by the delicate little dimpled hand of Katrina Van Tassel. Thus, feeding his mind with the many sweet thoughts and sugared superstitions he journeyed along the sides of a range of hills which took out upon some of the good the goodliest scenes of the mighty hudson hudson the sun gradually wheeled his broad disk down into the west the wide bosom of the tappan zee lay motionless and glassy excepting that there had been a gentle undulation waved and prolonged the blue shadow of the distant mountain a few amber clouds floated in the sky without a breath of air to move them. Their horizon was a fine golden tint changing gradually into a pure apple green and from that into the deep blue of midheaven. A slanting ray lingered on the woody crest of the precipice that overhung some parts of the river, giving greater depth to the dark gray and purple of their rocky sides. A sloop was loitering in the distance, dropping slowly with the tide, her sail hanging uselessly against the mast, and as the reflection of the sky gleamed along the still water, it seemed as if the vessel was suspended in the air. It was toward the evening that Ichabod arrived at the castle of Heer Van Tassel, which he found thronged with pride and flower of the adjacent country. Old farmers, a spare, leathern-faced race in homespun coats and breeches, loose stockings, huge shoes, and magnificent pewter buckles. Their brisk, withered little dames in clothes-crimmed caps, long-waisted short gowns, homespun petticoats with scissors and pincushions and gay calico pockets hanging on the outside, buxom lasses, almost as antiquated as their mothers, excepting where a straw hat, a fine ribbon, or perhaps a white frock gave symptoms of city innovation. The sons, in short square skirted coats with rows of stupendous brass buttons, in, and their hair generally cued in the fashion of the times, especially if they could procure an eel skin for the purpose it being esteemed throughout the country as a potent nourisher and strengthener of the hair. Brom Bones, however, was the hero of the scene, 
having come to the gathering on his favorite steed, Daredevil, creature like himself, full of metal and mischief, and which no one but himself could manage. He was, in fact, noted for preferring vicious animals, given to all kinds of tricks, which kept the rider in constant risk of his neck, for he held a tractable, well-broken horse as unworthy of a lad of spirit. Fain would I pause to dwell upon the world of charms that burst upon the enraptured gaze of my hero as he entered the state parlor of Van Tassel's mansion. Not those of a bevy of buxom lasses with their luxurious display of red and white, but the ample charms of a genuine Dutch country tea table in the sumptuous time of autumn. Such heaped up platters of cakes of various and almost indescribable kinds, known only to experienced Dutch housewives. There was doughty donut, the tender oli miak, the crisp and crumbling puller, sweet cakes and short cakes, ginger cakes and honey cakes, and a whole family of cakes. And then there were apple pies and peach pies and pumpkin pies, besides slices of ham and smoked beef, and moreover delectable dishes of preserved plums and peaches and pears and quince, not to mention broiled shad and roasted chickens together with bowls of milk and cream, all mingled higgly piggy, pretty much as I have enumerated them, with the motherly teapot sending up its clouds of vapor from the mist. Heaven bless the mark. I want breath and time to discuss this banquet as it deserves, and am too eager to get on with my story. Happily, Ichabod Crane was not in so hurry as his historian, but did ample justice to every dainty. He was a kind and thankful creature whose heart was delated in proportion as his skin was filled with good cheer and whose spirits rose with eating as some men's do with drink. He could not help to rolling his large eyes around him as, as he ate, and chuckling with the possibility that he might one day be lord of all this scene of almost unimaginable luxury and splendor. Then he thought how soon he'd turn his back upon the old schoolhouse snap his fingers in the face of Hans von Ripper and every other niggardly patron and kick any interrent pedagogue out of the doors that should dare to call him comrade. Old Baltus van Tassel moved about among his guests with the face of delated and with content and good humor, round and jolly as the harvest moon. His hospitable attentions were brief but expressive being confined to a shake of the hand, a slap on the shoulder, a loud laugh, and a pressing invitation to fall to and help themselves. And now the sound of the music from the common room or hall summoned to the dance. The musician was an old gray-headed man who had been interim orchestra of the neighborhood for more than half a century. His instrument was as old and battered as himself. The greater part of the time he scraped on two or three strings, accompanying every movement of the bow with the motion of the head, bowing almost to the ground and stamping his foot whenever a fresh couple were to start. Ichabod prided himself upon his dancing as much as upon his vocal powers. Not a limb, not a fiber about him was idle. 
and to have seen him loosely hung frame in full motion and clattering about the room, you would have thought St. Finis himself had blessed the patron of the dance was figuring before you in person. He was the admiration of all who have gathered of all ages and sizes from the farm and the neighborhood stood forming a pyramid of shining faces at every door and window, gazing with delight at the scene, rose, ro rolling their eyeballs and showing grinning rows of ivory from ear to ear. How could the flogger of urchins be otherwise than animated and joyous? The lady of his heart was his partner in the dance and smiling graciously in reply to all in his amorous ogglings, while Brom Bones, sorely smitten with love and jealousy, sat brooding by himself in one corner. When the dance was at an end, Ichabod was attracted to a knot of sager folk who, with old Van Tassel, sat smoking at one end of the piazza, gossiping over former times and drawing out long stories about the war. This neighborhood, at the time of which I'm speaking, was one of those highly favored places which abound with chronicle and great men. The British and American line had run near it during the war. It had, therefore, been, see been the scene of marauding and infested with refugees, cowboys, and all kinds of border chivalry. Just sufficient time had alas elapsed to enable each storyteller to dress up his tale with a little becoming fiction and in the distinctiveness of his recollection to make himself the hero of every exploit. There was the story of Dofi Martling, a large blue-bearded Dutchman who had nearly taken a British frigate with an old iron nine-pounder from a mud breastwork and only that his gun burst with the sixth discharge. And there was an old gentleman who shall be nameless, being too rich and a mire to be lightly mentioned, who in the Battle of White Plains, being an excellent master of defense, parried a musket ball with a small sword, insomuch that he absolutely fell at whiz around the blade and the glance off the hilt in the proof of which he was ready at any time to show the sword, and with it hilt a little bent. There were several more that had been equally great in the field, not one of whom was but persuaded that he had considerable hand in bringing the war to a happy termination. But all these were nothing to the tales of ghosts and apparitions, apparitions that succeeded. The neighborhood is rich in legendary treasures of its kind. Local tales and superstitions thrive best in these sheltered, long-settled retreats, but are trampled underfoot by the shifting throng that forms the population of most of our country places. Besides, there is no encouragement for ghosts in most of our villages, for they have scarcely had time to finish their first nap and turn themselves to their gra graves before surviving friends have traveled away from the neighborhood so that when they turn out at night to walk their rounds, they have no acquaintance left to call upon. This is perhaps the reason why we so seldom hear of ghosts, except in our long-established Dutch communities. The immediate cause, however, of the prevalence of supernatural stories in these parts was doubtless owning to the vicinity of Sleepy Hollow. There was a contingent in the very air that blew from the haunted region, it breathed forth an atmosphere of dreams and fancies infecting all the land. 
Several of the Sleepy Hollow people were present at Van Tassel's, and as usual, were doing out their wild and wonderful legends. Many dismal tales were told about funeral trains and mourning cries and wailings heard and seen about the great tree where one unfortunate Major Andre was taken and which stood in the neighborhood. Some mention was made also of the woman in white that haunted the dark glen at Raven Rock and was often heard to shriek on winter nights before a storm, having perished there in the snow. The chief part of the stories, however, turned upon the favorite specter of Sleepy Hollow, the headless horseman, who had been heard several times of late patrolling the country, and it was said tethered his horse nightly among the graves in the churchyard. The sequestered situation of this church seems always to have made it a favorable haunt of troubled spirits. It stands on a knoll surrounded by locust trees and lofty elms, from among which its decent whitewashed walls shine modestly forth, like Christian purity beaming through the shades of retirement. A gentle slope descends from it in a silver sheet of water, bordered by high trees, by which peeps may be caught at the blue hills of the Hudson. To look upon its grass-grown yard where the sunbeams seem to sleep so quietly, one would think there would be at least, least the dead might rest in peace. On one side of the church extends a wide, woody dell, along which raves a large brook among the broken rocks and trunks of fallen trees. Over a deep black part of the stream, not far from the church, was formerly thrown a wooden bridge. The road that led to it and the bridge itself were thickly shaded by overhanging trees, which catched a gloom about it, even in the daytime, but occasioned a fearful darkness at night. This was one of the favorite haunts of the headless horseman and the place where he was most frequently encountered. The tale was told of old Brewer, a most heretical disbeliever in ghosts and how he met the horseman returning from his foray into Sleepy Hollow and was obliged to get up behind him and how they galloped over brush and brake, over hill and swamp until they reached the bridge when the horseman suddenly turned into a skeleton, threw Old Brower into the brook and sprang away over the treetops with a clap of thunder. This story was immediately matched by a thrice marvelous adventure of Brom Bones who made light of the galloping Hessian as an errant jockey. He affirmed that on returning one night from the neighboring village of Sing Sing, he had been overtaken by this midnight trooper and that he had offered to race him for a bowl and bowl of punch and should have won it too, for Daredevil beat the goblin horse all hollow. But just as they came to the church bridge, the Hessian bolted and vanished in a flash of fire. All these tales told in that drowsy undertone with the which men talk in the dark, the countenances of the listeners only now and then receiving a casual gleam from the glare of a pipe, sank deep in the mind of Ichabod. He repaid them in kind with large extracts from his invaluable author, Cotton Mather, and added that many marvelous events that had taken place in his native state of Connecticut and the fearful sights which he had seen in his nightly walks about Sleepy Hollow. The revel now gradually broke up. 
old farmers gathered together, their families in their wagons, and were heard for some time rattling along the hollow roads and over the distant hills. Some of the damsels mounted on pillions behind their favorite swains, and their light-hearted laughter mingling with the clatter of hoofs echoed along the silent woodlands, soundingly fainter and fainter until they gradually died away. And the late scene of noise and frolic was all silent and deserted. Ichabod only lingered behind, according to the custom of country lovers, to have a tete-a-tete with the heiress, fully convinced that he was now on the high road to success. What passed at this interview I will not pretend to say, for I, in fact, do not know. Something, however, I fear me, must have gone wrong, for he certainly sallied forth after no very great interval with the air quite desolate and hop-fallen. Oh, these women, these women! Could that girl have been playing off any of her coquettish tricks? Was her encouragement of the poor pedagogue all a mere sham to secure the conquest of his rival? Heaven only knows, not I. Let it suffice to say, Ichabod stole forth with the air of one who had been sacking a hen roast rather than a fair lady's heart. Without looking to the right or left to notice the scene of rural wealth on which he had so often gloated, he went straight to the stable and with several hearty cluffs and kicks, roused his seed most uncourteously from the comfortable quarters in which it was soundly sleeping, dreaming of mountains, of corn and oats, and whole valleys of timothy and clover. It was the very witching time of night that Ichabod, heavy-hearted and crestfallen, pursued his travel homeward along the sides of lofty hills which rise above Tarry Town and which he traversed so cheerily in the afternoon, the hour was as dismal as himself. Far below him, the Tappan Zee spread its dusky and indistinct waste of waters, with here and there the tall mast of a sloop riding quietly at anchor under the land. In the deep hush of midnight, he could even hear the barking of the watchdog from the opposite shore of the Hudson, but it was so vague and faint as to only give an idea of his distance from this faithful companion of man. Now and then, too, the long-drawn crowing of a cock, accidentally awakened, would sound far, far off from some farmhouse away among the hills, but it was like a dreaming sound in his ear. No signs of life occurred near him, but occasionally the melancholy chirp of a cricket or perhaps the guttural twang of a bullfrog from a neighboring marsh as if sleeping uncomfortably and turning suddenly in his bed. All the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard in the afternoon now came crowding upon his recollection. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. He was, moreover, approaching that very place where many of the scenes of the ghost stories had been laid. In the center of the road stood an enormous tulip tree, which towered like a giant above all the other trees of the neighborhood and formed a kind of landmark. 
Its limbs were gnarled and fantastic, large enough to form trunks from ordinary trees, twisting down almost to the earth and rising again into the air. It was connected with the tragic story of an unfortunate Andre who had been taken prisoner hard by and was universally known by the name of Major Andre's Tree. The common people regarded it with a mixture of respect and superstition, partly out of sympathy for the fate of its ill-starred namesake and partly from the tales of strange sights and doleful laminations told concerning it. As Ichabod approached the fearful tree, he began to whistle. He thought his whistle was answered, and it was but a blast sweeping sharply through the dry branches. As he approached a little nearer, he thought he saw something white hanging in the midst of the tree. He paused and ceased whistling, but on looking more narrowly, perceived that it was a place where the tree had been scathed by lightning and the white wood laid bare. Suddenly he heard a groan. His teeth chattered and his knees smote against the saddle. It was but the rubbing of one huge bough upon another as they were swayed about by the breeze. He passed the tree in safety, but new perils lay before him. About 200 yards from the tree, a small brook crossed the road and ran into marshy and thickly wooden glen known by the name of Wiley Swamp. A few rough logs laid side by side served for a bridge over the stream. On that side of the road where the brook entered the wood, a group of oaks and chestnuts matted thick with wild grapevines threw a cavernous gloom over it. To pass this bridge, was the severest trial. It was this identical spot that the unfortunate Andre was captured, and under the covert of those chestnuts and vines were the sturdy human concealed who surprised him. This was, this has ever since been considered a haunted stream, and the fearful are the feelings of the schoolboy who has to pass it alone after dark. As he approached the stream, his heart began to thump. He summoned up, however, all his resolution, gave his horse half a score of kicks in the ribs, and attempted to dash briskly across the bridge. But instead of starting forward, the perverse old animal made a lateral movement and ran broadside against the fence. Ichabod, whose fears increased with the delay, jerked the reins on the other side and kicked lustily with the contrary foot. It was all in vain. His steed started, it is true, but it was only to plunge to the opposite side of the road into a thicket of brambles and alder bushes. The schoolmaster now bestowed both whip and heel upon the starveling ribs of old gunpowder, who dashed forward, snuffling and snorting, but came to a stand just by the bridge with a suddenness that had nearly sent his elder sprawling over his head. Just at this moment, a plashy tramp by the side of the bridge caught the sensitive car of Ichabod. In a dark shadow of the grove on the margin of the brook, he beheld something huge, 
shaping, black and towering. It stirred not, but seemed gathered up in the gloom, like some gigantic monster ready to spring upon the traveler. The hair of the affrighted pedagogue rose upon his head with terror. What was to be done? To turn and fly now was too late, and besides, what chance was there of escaping ghost or goblin? If such it was, which could ride upon the wings of the wind? Summoning up, therefore, a show of courage, he demanded in stammering accents, Who are you? He received no reply. He repeated his demand in a still more agitated voice. Still, there was no answer. Once more, he cajoled the sides of an inflexible gunpowder and shutting his eyes broke forth with involuntary fever into a psalm tune. Just then, the shadowy object of alarm put itself in motion and with a scramble and a bound stood at once in the middle of the road. Though the night was dark and dismal, yet the form of an unknown might now in some degree be ascertained. He appeared to be a horseman of large dimensions and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame. He made no offer of molestation or sociability, but kept afoot on one side of the road, jogging along the blind side of old gunpowder, who had now got over his fright and waywardness. Ichabod, who had no relish for this strange midnight companion, and bethought himself of the adventure of Brom Bones with the galloping Hassan, now quickened his steed in hopes of leaving him behind. The stranger, however, quickened his horse to equal pace. Ichabod pulled up and fell into a walk, thinking to lag behind, but the other did the same. His heart began to sink within him. He endeavored to resume his psalm tune, but his parched tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not utter a stave. There was something in the moody and dodged silence of this pretentious companion that was mysterious and appalling. It was soon fearfully accounted for. On mounting a rising ground, which brought the figure of his fellow traveler in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak, Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that he was headless. But his horror was still more increased on observing that the head, which would have rested on his shoulders, was carried before him on the pummel of his saddle. His terror rose in desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping by the sudden movement to give his companion the slip. But the specter started to full jump with him. Away then they dashed, through the thick and thin, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound. Ichabod's flimsy garden garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long, lank body away over his horse's head in the eagerness of his flight. They now had reached the road which turns off to Sleeping Hollow, but Gunpowder, who seemed possessed by a demon, instead of keeping up it, made an opposite turn and plunged headlong downhill to the left. 
This road leads through a sandy hollow, shaded by trees for about a quarter of a mile, where it crosses the bridge, famous in goblin story. And just beyond the swells, the green moor, on which stands the whitewashed church. As yet the panic of the steed has given his unskillful rider an apparent advantage in the chase, but just as he had got halfway through the hollow, the girths of the saddle gave way, and he felt it slipping from under him. He seized it by the pommel and endeavored to hold it firm, but in vain, and had just time to save himself by clasping old gunpowder around the neck when the saddle fell to the earth and he heard it trampled underfoot by this pursuer. For a moment, the terror of Hans van Ripper's wrath passed across his mind, for it was his Sunday saddle. But this was no time for petty fears. The goblin was hard on his haunches, and, unskilled rider that he was, he had much ado to maintain his seat, sometimes slipping on one side, sometimes on the other, and sometimes joined at the high ridge of the horse's backbone with a violence that he verily feared would cleave him asunder. An opening in the trees now cheered him with the hopes that the church bridge was at hand. The wavering reflection of the silver star in the bosom of the brook told him he was not mistaken. He saw the walls of the church dimly glare under the trees below, he recollected the place where Bombone's ghostly competitor had disappeared. If I can but reach that bridge, he thought, Ichabod, I am safe. Just then he heard the black steed panting and blowing close behind him. He even fancied that he felt his hot breath. Another convulsive kick in the ribs and old gunpowder sprang to the bridge. He thundered over the resounding planks. He gained the opposite side. And now Ichabod cast a look behind to see if his pursuer should vanish, according to rule, in a flash of fire and brimstone. Just then he saw the gob goblin rising in, in his stirrups. And in the very act of hurling his head at him, Ichabod endeavored to dodge the horrible missile, but too late and encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust, and Gunpowder, the black steed, and the goblin rider passed by like a whirlwind. The next morning the old horse was found without his saddle, and with the bridle under his feet, soberly cropping up the gla glass at his master's gate. Ichabod did not make his appearance at breakfast. Dinner hour came, but no Ichabod. The boys assembled at the schoolhouse and strolled idly about the banks of the brook, but no schoolmaster. Hans van Ripper now began to feel some uneasiness about the fate of poor Ichabod and his saddle. As inquiry was set on foot and after diligent investigation, they came upon his trances. In one part of the road leading to the church was found the saddle, trampled in the dirt, the tracks of horses' hoofs deeply dented into the road, and evidently at furious speed. They were traced to the brook, where the water ran deep 
and black and was found to be the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod and close beside it a shattered pumpkin. The brook was searched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not to be discovered. Hans Van Ripper, as executor of his estate, examined the bundle which contained all of his worldly effects. They consisted of two shirts and two half stocks for the neck, a pair or two of worsted stockings, and an old pair of corduroy small clothes, a rusty razor, a book of psalm tunes full of dog's ears, and a broken pitch pipe. As to the books and furniture of the schoolhouse, they belonged to the community except Cotton Mather's History of Witchcraft, a New England almanac, and a book of dreams and fortune-telling, in which last was a sheet of fool's caps, much scribbled and blotted in several fruitless attempts to make a copy of verses in honor of the heiress of Van Tassel. These magic books and the poetic scrawl were forthright consigned to the flames by Hans Van Ripper, from whom the time forward determined to send his children no more to school, observing that he never knew any good come of the same reading and writing. Whatever money the schoolmaster possessed, he had received his quarter pay but a day or two before. He must have had about his person at the time of his disappearance. The mysterious event caused much speculation at the church on the following Sunday. Knots of gazers and gossips were collected in the churchyard at the bridge and at the spot where the hat and the pumpkin had been found. The stories of Brewer and of Bones and a whole budget of others were called to mind when they had diligently considered them all and compared them with any symptoms of the present case. They shook their heads and came to the conclusion that Ichabod had been carried off by the galloping Hessian. As he was a bachelor and in nobody's debt, nobody troubled his head any more about him. The school was removed to a different quarter of this hollow and another pedagogue reigned in his steed. It's true, an old farmer who had been down to New York on a visit several years later, and from whom this account of the ghostly adventure was received, brought home some intelligence that Ichabod Crane was still alive, and that he had left the neighborhood partly through fear of the goblin and Hans Van Ripper, and partly in mortification he had changed his quarters to the distant part of the cemetery, the country rather. He kept school and studied law at the same time, had been admitted to the bar, turned politician, electioneered, written for the newspapers, and finally had been made justice of the T-pound court. Brom Bones, too, who shortly after his rival's disappearance conducted the blooming Katrina in triumph at the altar. He was absorbed and exceedingly knowing that whatever the story of Ichabod was related 
and always burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin, which led some to suspect that he knew more about the matter than he chose to tell. The old country wives, however, who are the best judges of these matters, maintain that the day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural um, means, and it was a favorite story often told about the neighborhood round in the winter evening fire. The bridge became more than ever an object of superstitious awe, and that may be the reason why the road has been altered of late years, so that as so as to approach the church by the border of the mill pond, the schoolhouse being deserted soon fell to decay and it was reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate pedagogue and the plowboy loitering homeward of still a summer evening has often fancied his voice at a distance chanting a melancholy psalm tune among the tranquil solitudes of Sleepy Hollow. Well, good morning. So that was the tale of the legend of Sleepy Hollow. As you could tell towards the end, I was getting super tired. But here I am, bright and early in the morning with a cup of coffee to read you the postscript. And I apologize for the background noise because, you know, of course, my neighbor is running his generator right now on a beautiful day in October at 830 in the morning. Yep. Story of my life. Anyway, um, there was a great tale to tell. I excited to do some more. I hope some of you listened to it in this very, uh, interesting weekend we have coming up of October 30th through the second, all the various holidays, day of the dead, Halloween, Samhain, all saints day, all souls day, all the lifting of the veil types of holidays where we can dance with spirits and burn things, which is always fun. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, I would say that I, when I was reading from this beautiful book, I told you about, you know, it's really only like four inches wide. So I know my intonation was a little bit off because it was really hard on the line breaks to know how, you know, excited or, uh, lowering my voice, I should get. So, so yeah, I learned from that experience as well. So here's the postscript of the legend of Sleepy Hollow, found in the handwriting of Mr. Knickerbocker. The preceding tale is given almost in the precise words in which I heard it related at a corporation meeting of the ancient city of Mentatos, at which were present many of its sagest and most illustrious burghers. The narrator was pleasant, shabby, gentlemanly old fellow in pepper and salt clothes with a sadly humorous face and one whom I strongly suspected of being poor. He made such efforts to be entertaining. When his story was concluded, there was much laughter and approbation, particularly from two or three deputy aldermen, who had been asleep a greater part of the time. There was, however, one tall, dry-looking old gentleman 
with beetling eyebrows who maintained a grave and rather severe face throughout. Now and then folding his arms, inclining his head and looking down upon the floor as if turning a doubt over in his mind. He was one of your wary men who never laugh, but upon good grounds when they have reason and the law is on their side. When the mirth of the rest of the company have subsided and silence was restored, he leaned one arm in the elbow of his chair and sticking with the other akimbo demanded with a slight but exceedingly staged motion of the head and contraction of the brow, what was the moral of the story and what it went to prove? The storyteller, who was just putting a glass of wine to his lips as a refreshment after his toils, paused for a moment, looked at his inquirer with an air of infinite difference, and lowering his glass slowly to the table, observed that the story was intended most logically to prove that there is no situation in life but has its advantages and pleasures, provided we will take a joke as we find it. That therefore, he that runs races with goblin troopers is likely to have a rough riding of it. Ergo, for a country schoolmaster to be refused the hand of a Dutch heiress is a certain step to high preferment in this state. The cautious old gentleman knit his eyebrows tenfold closer after his explanation, being sorely puzzled, puzzled by the rationalization of this soliloquism ah words well methought the one in pepper and salt eyed him with something of a triumphant leer at length he observed that all this very well but still he had thought the story a little on the extravagant there were one or two points on which he had his doubts faith sir replied the storyteller as to that matter, I don't believe one half of it myself. <laughs> so there you go. The legend of Sleepy Hollow. Have a happy Halloween, everybody. Talk to you real soon.